Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. It's October the 17th. It's early afternoon uh, in San Francisco uh, on the west coast of the United States. I'm Andrew Keen, the host of Keen On. Hope you're all having good days and above all else, healthy days. Uh, the show, as many of you know, has gone daily since COVID. And over the last 18 months, we've been showing this deadly map all too many times, of course, for people listening rather than watching. This is the coronavirus map of the United States. The darker the red, the more deaths, the more sick people. And of course, it's a very sad map, particularly for those people who have had the bad fortune to to, to, to uh, suffer from COVID or friends and family who, who suffer from COVID. But the news is good. I've said that before. And in the past, I've always been proved wrong because the news went from good to bad. But the lines are down. Um, Another chart from the New York Times is suggesting that daily new hospital admissions are falling again. They've fallen dramatically. They rose a little bit in August. They're down again. Um, and best of all, uh, latest uh, new reported cases of coronavirus, um, the, the lines are all downward, which is very, very encouraging. It's not, of course, a comfort for people who are still suffering from it, who are still catching it. There are some people, but fewer and fewer people. And of course, that's because of the vaccines, just as the lines for hospital admissions and deaths and, and people catching COVID are down. The vaccination map is up for people watching. That's the, the green as opposed to the red. More and more people um, have, uh, have been vaccinated. Total doses given, according to Google today, in the United States, 415 million total doses, 191 million people. That's almost 60% of Americans. That means 40%, of course, haven't been vaccinated. But the vaccinations are key in terms of confronting um, the pandemic. Uh, and that's reflected internationally. Uh, if you look at the headlines today, Australia uh, is easing uh, its regulations in terms of entry. Children now are are being va vaccinated. Uh, the report out today is that an FDA panel recommended the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for young children. Um, and uh, FDA approval is expected as soon as Friday for uh, states already, uh, for, for, P for the pediatric vaccine. States are already placing orders. That's according to the Washington Post. Uh, and Merck, one of the big Biotech international companies are even sharing their formula for their COVID pill with poor countries. Uh, and just as Australia is opening up, so is Germany. Many economies and societies are opening up. We're back to a global world. But the world, of course, the news isn't entirely good. Um, uh, the inequalities already rife in the world are reflected in unequal vaccine access, according to a UN agency. Uh, and the political ramifications of COVID now are beginning to be felt all over the world. In Brazil, lawmakers are seeking to indict Bolsonaro over his 
pandemic response or perhaps lack of response. The real story, though, is of the vaccine. And today, uh, one of the, the first books about the vaccine is out. It's called The First Shots, the epic rivalries and heroic science behind the race to the coronavirus vaccine. And the book is written by a young Los Angeles-based journalist, Brendan Burrell. And I'm thrilled that uh, Brendan um, is talking to us today. Uh, Brendan, have I told the story so far today? Is, uh, are, we, are we over the hump? Has the vaccine finally, finally use this word without irony, is it killing COVID? Uh, yeah, it's preventing COVID. Uh, you know, the uh, I think it's very interesting that the graphs you displayed there it, we're, we're still at sixty percent here, which is positive. But but why aren't we at eighty ninety percent uh, vaccinations um, because of the the remarkable success of these vaccines, preventing over ninety percent of hospitalization? Uh, you know, everybody should be going out and getting them. Um, we are over the hump here in the U.S. A lot of doctors are saying this winter's not going to be as bad as last winter. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, we all have to sort of be humble here and remember that the rest of the world is not uh, vaccinated at the rate that we are. So the pandemic is not over yet. Well, you asked the question rhetorically, Brendan, those 40 or 42 percent of Americans who aren't getting the vaccine, you asked why they're not. You're the expert. You're the author of this new book, The First Shots, one of the first serious books about uh, the development of the vaccine. Why aren't people getting vaccine vaccinated? Why isn't this chart up to 100 percent? Why don't all Americans now or at least those who can be vaccinated? Why haven't they been vaccinated? Yeah, I think it's a complicated issue. Uh, you know, the, I, I, in, in my own uh, family, I know people who, who are resistant to being vaccinated and they throw out a number of reasons, um, some of them true and some of them not so true. Uh, you know, we've all heard, heard people joke about the microchips thing that, that, you know, and I don't know if that was just a viral joke or what, but then there's more serious concerns like, is the vaccine going to change my genes? And then there's also kind of the view that, well, I'm young, I'm healthy. Why do I have to worry about COVID? This is somebody else's problem. Right. Well, um, educate us, Brendan. You've, as I said, you've written this book. You've, you've, you've done a lot of serious legwork on understanding the development and nature of these vaccines. Are they 100% safe or as safe as any vaccine can be? They are remarkably safe. Absolutely. I mean, they, the, the thing about a vaccine, you know, you know compared to a, a drug, where, you know, if you're testing a, a drug, you're giving it to sick people, right? So it's a limited number of people you need to make sure it works with. With a vaccine, you're giving it to millions of healthy people. And that means even the slightest side effect can cause a major problem. So when people are talking about the safety of these vaccines, they've passed an enormous bar, a hot, very high bar, and the rate of side effects is tiny compared to the millions of people who have received them. Um, you know, with, with anything, I, I mean, people have pre-existing conditions, people might react to vaccines in, in various ways, but, you know, it, it's the data is in, which is it's much safer to be vaccinated than not to be vaccinated and get COVID. I remember this time last year, Brendan, there was a lot of talk about the imminence of the vaccine. Trump, of course, was 
classically or typically boastful. Um, your book is about, the, the subtitle of the book is The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Coronavirus Vaccine. Hindsight, of course, is always twenty twenty, but it, it seems as if the vaccine was developed much quicker than the, the many people were forecasting or feared. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was a, a fascinating process of uh, sort of a lot of skepticism when, when the Operation Warp Speed was kind of publicly rolled out on May 15th, if you remember. There was a ceremony yeah. in the White House Rose Garden, and uh, Trump was saying at that point, we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year. We're going to have, you know, 100 million doses, 300 million doses. Uh, and there was just, uh, you know, screaming by scientists. There was an op-ed in the New York Times that said, oh, this is an election day surprise. Trump's going to rush the process and so on. And it, and part of the thing was we'd been told time and again by Tony Fauci and others, 12 to 18 months for, for a vaccine uh, at the fastest. And I think historically, the fastest vaccine we've ever gotten was four years for the mumps vaccine in the 1960s. So how on earth are we going to pull this <laughs> this vaccine out in, in, in such a, a rapid rate? And the truth was there was a lot of stuff kind of happening behind the scenes. And there's a, there's a lot of uh, fascinating details that I write about in the book about how, you know, the scientific process w went at such a high rate of speed. And then the way the regulatory process happened was, was very fast as well. Um, you know, and if you want me to walk you through that, I mean, basically, the, the what was remarkable about this vaccine was it wasn't just the, a process that began uh, when the coronavirus hit, right? These scientists had been working on all these developments from the, you know, the mRNA to the actual uh, strategy to create a vaccine for coronavirus. Brendan, the subtitle is, uh, uses the words heroic science as opposed to heroic scientists. <laughs> but are there scientists who were heroic, who... Um, who, who who we really need to thank for this? You you write very positively about the CEO of uh, Moderna, Stefan Bansell, although I'm not quite sure if he's a scientist. Are there particular scientists who will who will emerge from this as being the real heroes? I think there there's a few. There's one of the my favorite characters in the book is Barney Graham. Uh, he's a, a a farm boy from Kansas. Uh, six foot five with a salt and pepper beard. And uh, he, he kind of grew up, you know, always fixing broken farm equipment. And that, that's what he told me was how he found his path towards science. And for years, uh, he was kind of toiling away at this obscure respiratory virus uh, called respiratory syncytial virus, uh, working under Tony Fauci there at the NIH and coming up with a strategy to make vaccines. It's thanks to his work and his just curiosity about the world that we were prepared when the coronavirus hit. Another scientist that I detail is Kathleen Carrico, this uh, Hungarian scientist who spent years toiling it away, convinced that she could make mRNA work as a drug or a vaccine. And she got no credit for it. She was on the verge of losing her job at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, she lost the rights to, to um, try to try to commercialize her findings, and it's only now she's finally receiving her due. Uh, so those are just a couple of the. the you, you're right about, and, and I'm curious. You know, most people in liberal 
polite society are not willing to credit Trump with anything. But should we credit Trump or at least some of his people? You write, for example, about Bob Cadley, his stockpile chief, is he? And some of the other Trump people, should we credit them, even if we hold our nose while doing it? <laughs> uh, you know, I, that was definitely something that I was so fascinated by the dynamics within the Trump administration. We know that it was a notoriously dysfunctional White House. They goofed on the COVID response, um, but it was divided. And there were people in the administration who were good people, public servants who were trying to do the right thing. And in fact, the, this, this person you mentioned, Bob Cadlick, uh, a former uh, Air Force doctor who was running this obscure office called the Office of uh, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. He was a black sheep in the Trump administration. Trump wanted to fire the guy. Uh, well, he wanted but to fire he, everyone at, at some point. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but he was also kind of painted as, as, a, as a poor leader in the media as well. But he was one of the architects of Warp Speed and was kind of working behind the scenes to make it make it happen alongside a, a leader there at the FDA. Um, and so, yes, Trump did sort of give the operation an approval, but this was a kind of groundswell from people inside the government that were dedicated to the government, not just uh, uh, dedicated to making themselves look good. <laughs> Brendan, another headline today, which I, I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with, is Deborah Burks telling Congress, um, that 130,000 people died unnecessarily. She's getting pushback from Scott Atlas, who I guess she accused of this essentially uh, as an Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. What do you make of Burks's testimony and Burks herself, who seems to be di disliked by everybody? Although we did have someone on the show a few months ago who was a big friend of Burke saying that she was heroic in the fight against AIDS. So she's clearly a very competent scientist. She's just very bad at public relations. Yeah, I think Burke's, uh, Burke's is a fascinating character, very smart woman, uh, very dedicated to what she does, but she definitely rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, I know, uh, she, yeah, I mean, she if, if the people are watching, watching this, you can see this photo of Burke's with Trump, glaring in the background as he normally did, especially when Burks, I guess, appeared. So go, go on, Brendan, sorry. That's right. I mean, but even her peers, even people that you would think are on her side, uh, they, you know, she definitely had a tendency. And in my book, I described the scene when Operation Warp Speed's coming together and she's kind of attacking the scientists who were trying to put together the program. She sometimes asked questions that were very, uh, you know, uh, not very nice, let's say. Um, but but I think she she was she was dedicated. And what she's saying here about the 130,000 dead, I don't know the exact basis for that number, but she sort of alluded to this fact in like, you know, you can say what you want about the administration, but in February and March, we everybody was caught off guard. There was a lot of sort of uh, chaos among scientists and, and un uncertainty among scientists about the best way, best way to handle this and 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 how to uh, slow the spread of this virus. But, but Trump, when it comes to the Hall of Shame with um, uh, with uh, COVID, he's not up there with Bolsonaro, who, as I said in the beginning of the show, is now being indicted. I mean, for all his dysfunctionality and abrasive, unpleasant personality, 
he, he doesn't come out of this as disgracefully as Bolsonaro, does he? Well, you know, Trump always, his strategy was always, what's the thing I can do that will make me popular again? If, you know, he was fundamentally a populist in, in some sense. And, and so he said a lot of things that I think were very, were just ways to distract the American public from what was going on with COVID. And what I was saying about the crisis in February and March, that we could not have prevented. But in April and May, when we started reopening the country again and we lost control over uh, uh, cer certain social distancing measures and so on like that, and, and uh, the rejection of masking measures, I think that did cause some serious problems. And that, that comes from the top. It came from a, a lack of leadership there and a lack of sort of taking, taking the reins and making the U.S. do some things that might have been kind of tough. The person who I found the most abrasive and unpleasant and annoying in, in the Trump administration was Alex Azar. Maybe that was my problem. Um, how does he come out of your book and um, warp speed and, and, and the fight to find a, a vaccine? Um, he, was, um, he was the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services. So he was, he, he, he was where the, the rubber met the road in terms of COVID in the Trump administration. He was a very interesting character. That is, he's actually Bob Cadlick's boss, um, and he was generally viewed within the White House as being, yes, a pompous kind of arrogant character. He he was again he was clashing with people. He's he's a very very smart man, but he's not a great uh, you know he, he he's not a great manager. He's a guy who thinks he's always right, um, and I think he certainly was you know, he screwed up in many ways, but actually he, he was part of the reason Operation Warp Speed worked. He helped. Wow. Uh, so he comes out of it. Not too bad. Aza. He comes out of it as a person who's trying to do his best, but is kind of, you know, gets in his own way, if you know what I mean. Um, and, 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 and what I, about, and, and the people's choice, or certainly my choice, um, is uh, Tony Fauci. He's in the headlines again today. Rand Paul is accusing him, we can use the A word, asshole, of, uh, for, um, uh, for uh, uh, some stuff on the Wuhan lab. How, how does Fauci come out of this? Yeah, I mean, Fauci is a, a pivotal character because his, his uh, uh, institute the, at the National Institute of Institutes for Health was funding some of this key research that allowed us to produce the Moderna vaccine. He was Barney Graham's boss, the, the guy who's, you know, got his head down and working towards the vaccine from the get go. And Fauci was kind of in this complicated position. He's not a political appointee. He's a career employee, been with the NIH for 30 years. And he's got this sort of balancing act that he has to perform where he's got to protect his scientists at the NIH. He's got to push science into the political agenda. But, you know, he, he can go against the president in some ways, but he can't go too far or he's going to be sort of yanked off stage. So he I did a pretty good job. He went just about as far as he could with Trump. Trump hated him, clearly hated him, humiliated him or tried to humiliate him, but never fired him. Yeah, I think unlike Burks, he didn't come across as, you know, Burks sort of, there's a few videos where she's trying to flatter Trump and do things like that. Yeah. Fauci would never do anything like that. He really just stuck to delivering the science. 
He's, you know, a lot of people have criticized him, though, and he's become a little bit of a target for people on all, all sides of the political yeah. spectrum for some mistakes he made here and there. But come on, you're at the center of a response like this, changing science. It, you're not always going to be right. Brandon, um, we've had a lot of debate on this show, not specifically in terms of COVID, but in terms of the broader structural crisis of government, of capitalism, of inequality, of the environment, about fixing this, whether we need to look at government or uh, corporations. You've talked a little bit about the dysfunctional, but ultimately perhaps effective nature of uh, Operation Warp Speed. Uh, what about the role of companies? There's Pfizer, of course. There's um, Stefan Bansal at Moderna. Are there particular companies and executives at these companies who come out with distinction? Yeah, I think this really was a chance for the pharmaceutical companies to shine. I mean, pre-COVID, they have admittedly a mixed reputation. There had been all kinds of, you know, there's always controversy about drug pricing, about this and that. But here they are coming out looking like heroes. You know, but I think one of the things I, I point out in my book is a pandemic or emerging infectious diseases. This has always been an area of a a market failure, right? Because typically a, something like Ebola, it might pop up in some country in Africa and then vanish before you can test a vaccine or before you'll even have a market to sell it to. So this is where government does need to step in. And the, the thing about Warp Speed was it's a perfect example of a public-private partnership. How do you kind of fill the gap, provide sustainable funding and so on? But government can't do it alone. It needs these companies and uh, this is a remarkable success, and I think it should be a kind of a model going forward for all the other potential threats that we might face from the viral world, as it were. Um, yeah, I, so I, I do I, want to talk about that, the, the, the broader lessons of, of our effective way of, of, of countering uh, COVID and developing the vaccine. But of course, Brendan, I have to ask you about Wuhan and, and what really happened. Um, you have s some stuff about that um, in the book. Um, lots of headlines today in the post. One person who might know what really happened in Wuhan. You write about a guy called Michael Callahan, who was airlifted in from the U.S. to Wuhan. Other pieces in the week about whether whether uh, the WHO has a last chance bid to, to solve uh, the COVID origins mystery. What's your take on how this whole thing began and the accountability and responsibility for the Chinese government? Yeah, I think it's really unfolded in a, in a disastrous manner um, because, uh, you know, the, the, the questions that emerged initially in the pandemic uh, were sort of quashed by the Chinese government and the WHO kind of went along with them, giving lip service to some of their, their misstatements. And we've seen, uh, I think just to back up, I mean, the, the two theories are, does this did this virus emerge naturally from a spillover event from, say, bats into uh, people somehow, or was it actually a, a leak from a laboratory? And I think that those are probably two, those are two strong possibilities. I wouldn't lean towards one or the other without more data. But what I've seen has just been well, so Well, yeah, if you can't, then who can? I'd like you to lean one way or the other, Brendan. That's your job, leaning. Um, Is your instinctive sense that 
that the government is is more or less responsible, the Chinese government? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to... And gonna I mean, the say... when I talk about the government, I'm not suggesting it was a state plot, but some sort of officially sanctioned virus that got out of control. Yeah, I, I really don't have any evidence. What I what I can say is there have the way that the scientists have acted, that the Chinese scientist over there, the bat lady of Wuhan, she has let out some uh, sort of misleading statements. There's been this slow drip, drip, drip of information that leads people like me and I think you are implying to be very skeptical of the official story. I've been disappointed with the scientific community here uh, in the U.S. for kind of like circling around and being overly defensive of the, you know, the, the, and opposed to this laboratory leak theory. I think that that definitely slowed things down, you know, in reporting the book, the people that I talked to many people inside government, like Bob Cadlick, who's a noted bioweapons expert, he was initially leaning towards a, a natural, he was initially leaning towards a natural leak. Now he's kind of leaning towards the possibility that a lab leak was, was more likely He's actually currently working uh, for the Senate, uh, r- running that and working on that investigation. Um, but I think, you know, th- that that Washington Post piece you point to was a very good piece pointing the finger at Peter Daszak, who, without a doubt, has really, uh, you know, proven not proven to be not such a great guy. The way that he has not released information about the grants that his organization had applied for, their proposals dismissed the possibility of a lap leak outright. I mean, yes. I think that that guy needs to come clean. Um, and that I think that that's sort of a pressure point for us. I don't think we're going to get anywhere with the Chinese government. Uh, I, I share that um, pessimism on the on the Chinese government front. I have to congratulate you, uh, Brendan. The book is just out, The First Shots, The Epic Rivalry and e- Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Corona Vaccine. But you're already uh, the, the book has already been adapted by Hollywood and HBO and uh, Adam McKay, a well-known uh, Hollywood producer director, is is making a, an adaptation for for a, for um, HBO. Uh, it's reported also in the Hollywood Reporter. I know that subtitles of books are probably out of your control, but do you think it's appropriate to respond to COVID by suggesting that? It sort of fits into the narrative of Pearl Harbor or post-Pearl Harbor America, of fighting back uh, a, a heroic story, uh, which is the way the book, not, not necessarily the narrative in the book, but the way in which the marketing is portraying it and the way, no doubt, that the HBO series will present it. You're you're suggesting that that presenting it as a kind of war effort is uh, there, there's an issue well, with that? heroism and you know heroic scientists fighting back against evil and we win in the end it doesn't really fit into the 2020s does it oh i i would i would disagree i mean what what is your definition of a hero the the heroes that i portray in the book are people who gave their lives dedicated their lives to the science, you know, to the science of... of no, no, I, I take that. I mean, these people are heroes. But firstly, as Burke suggests, many people died, perhaps unnecessarily. And mm-hmm. secondly, we're not, we haven't got rid of COVID. I mean, there's a New York Times piece this morning saying, how will we live if COVID is here to stay? And it is kind of here to stay. I mean, no one's going to be able to eliminate it. 
So it's not a 100% victory. It's not a sporting game, is it? Well, you know, most vaccines aren't 100% effective, but they remain, you know, one of the most effective public health measures we have, right? I mean, the number of lives saved, they've estimated a quarter million lives saved from these vaccines. That's a pretty big victory. You know, anytime you go to war, you're going to lose some people. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I stand by it. I think it, it, it is a, a heroic effort that takes took the entire country pulling together um, amid this incredibly dysfunctional administration. Well, you say that, the whole country pulling together. Most people had nothing to do with it. I mean, certainly the scientific community was heroic and certainly some of the companies and some of the executives and maybe even some of the people in the Trump administration. But most of us were hiding under our covers, stuck at home. Most of us weren't particularly heroic in COVID, were we? You know, the way that we some people are heroic now is by actually getting a vaccine, because, you know, as we talked, began this conversation with just 60 percent of people have been vaccinated. You know, even if you're healthy, you, you can potentially spread it to uh, more vulnerable people. And even though the vaccines aren't 100 percent effective at, at preventing transmission, they can reduce it. Um, so I think everybody can do their part. They can do their part by masking. They can do their part by being being respectful. You know, I mean, yeah, that's not. Yeah, I mean, we should, no, I take your point. I've been vaccinated, yeah. but I don't think we should pat ourselves on the back and consider ourselves heroic because we, we got a vaccine, should we? No, I, I think that's fair enough. But, there, you know, to live in a in a society like ours takes sort of small acts of altruism and generosity. And I, I think that that's something that should be commended. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I don't focus on every little man uh, in the book. I, I focus on some of the big players and some of the big fights that, that played out um, amid this kind of unprecedented unprecedented turmoil. Yeah, yeah and you do a very good job. And in, 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 in it's a very professional, coherent, articulate narrative. And congratulations on the book. Uh, your first book was, uh, I think you co-authored, uh, it's called Environment, Science, Issues and Solutions. While we're dealing with COVID, more and more people vaccinated, deaths and hospital admissions are down. Um, the environmental, if we want to call it pandemic or apocalypse, potential apocalypse continues to rage. Uh, we've had so many shows about this recently. A couple of weeks ago, I had Michael Lennox from the University of uh, Virginia on the show about how we're going to decarbonize the global economy. Uh, there's a huge international meeting in Glasgow, uh, I think this weekend on that. What can our response, and I use this word carefully, it's your word, our heroic response to COVID, what can it teach us about confronting the even more existential threat of global warming? Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap between what we had to do to beat back COVID and what we will have to do to face some of these greater challenges like climate change and so on. And it's kind of, you know, I think this is an ongoing debate in the environmental community about how much of the solution is going to come down to like individual action, you know, people buying electric cars or turning out their lights versus kind of the, the higher level uh, governmental action, the changes in the incentives for the companies and so on. That's That's been a, a, an on, ongoing debate. But yeah, I think that, that we've learned, number one, from COVID, 
just how hard it is to get the country to pull together. Um, and I don't think that... You well, know, it I never has. I mean, I, I take your point that some people pulled together, but 40% of people haven't been vaccinated. And the country, if anything, is even more divided under Biden than it was under Trump. Uh, that that may be the case. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there there are, you know, there are going to be greater challenges to, to cracking the climate crisis because... Yeah, it's this more distant thing for many people. It's not directly affecting people they know. They're not seeing it on TV every day. Um, you know, and even people that believe in climate change, uh, that are supportive of these types of things, you know, they think, oh, but you know what? I'm, I'm still going to buy plastic and drive my car where I want to drive it. It's a, that is a tough, a tough nut to crack, I got to say. Well, certainly... Um... Uh, you're going to switch on your TV in the not too distant future and you will see an adaptation of Brendan Burrell's new book, The First Shots, The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Coronavirus Vaccine. I want to congratulate you, Brendan, both on the book and the fact that you've already sold the rights to Hollywood, every young writer's dream. It's kind of your first book. So congratulations on that. As I said, you're talking to me from um, uh, Los Angeles uh, in these strange times. I always used to say at the end of the show, when I get people's book recommendations, we're living in COVID times. We're not really living in COVID times now, as you suggested, because we have the vaccine. So it's sort of post-COVID, but it's still a weird time for all sorts of reasons. What else should people be reading in addition to your new book, The First Shots? Well, one of the books that I, that I loved, it came out last year, actually, and is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It's uh, Sierra Murdoch's Yellow Bird. Um, about it's a it's an amazing story of, of a persistent woman on a uh, Native American reservation trying to uncover uh, a, a murderer in their midst and and I think it's definitely worth sitting down and and uh, learning a little bit about that. Great. Well, I have to get her on the show. I don't know that book. Um, where is she based? Do you know her? Yeah, she's up in uh, Oregon. Last time I checked. Uh, yeah, she's she's an amazing woman a very young writer and just a remarkable success. I would say that was a kind of a dark horse book in the, in the Pulitzer race. Uh, just, uh, and, and so, yeah, I'd encourage people to pick up a copy of that because it, it's, it's an amazing read. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if Michael, uh, sorry, if Brendan Burrell's new book, The First Shots is included on some of the, the long or short lists of, of, of prize nonfiction books for 2021. It's a really professional, credible, coherent account of, how we dealt, or we being the scientific community and the government dealt with the terrible epidemic of uh, COVID. So, Brendan, congratulations on the book. And I hope uh, there'll be many more to come and you'll appear many more times on the show. Thank you so much and keep well. Thanks a lot. Uh, you stay well yourself. <laughs>